Our passage this morning is taken from 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to read from the middle of the chapter, verse 16 down through verse 23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We are making our way through Scripture, leapfrogging as we go. We're stopping off in each of the major historical portions and sections of Scripture to look at what we call redemptive history, the story of salvation from the beginning to the end, the story of the gospel of Jesus from the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament. And now we're to the period of the monarchy, the period of the kings. It was supposed to have been the glory days for Israel. For brief periods it was, but it didn't stay that way. And that's how Jesus gives his gospel in the monarchy. Young Christians, young theologians, we're going to read about an argument that takes place in a family. A wife is angry at a husband. The king is mad at, I'm sorry I said that wrong, the queen is mad at the king. I want you to listen and see if you can figure out why. Why is she mad? And is she right? This is the good news of Jesus. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his own household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said... How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, O Lord Jesus, show us the strange, humiliating glories of our King and how they are good news to us, how they awaken and enliven our hearts, and how they fill us with joy and comfort and peace. If you'll show us your gospel in these things, for it we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? The kings of Israel are like a rogues gallery. 
They are pirates and murderers and bandits. They're adulterers, playboys, thieves, takers, and tyrants. They're vain, and they're proud, and they're paranoid. They were embarrassments, every last one of them. Most of them for the wrong reasons. A few of them, a handful of them, for the right reasons. David, the undisputed king of Israel, and Jesus, 1,000 years after David, whose kingship was always in dispute, were the most embarrassing of all. David was a standout among the kings. The man after God's own heart, the scriptures call him. The first king of Israel, Saul, David's predecessor, was a whiny thug. And most of the rest of the kings were criminals with crowns. And David would take his own turn in criminality too. But for the most part... He was a ray of light in an institution as black as the night that lives in our hearts. And that's the problem with the kingship in Israel. It was born of complaint and the lust for the wrong things in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The confederacy of of tribes known as Israel... Twelve tribes broken up and allotted territories throughout the promised land were ruled by the corrupt sons of Samuel the priest. Samuel's sons were extortionists and on the take, they were bullies. They were ill-suited to lead the people because they didn't love the people. They preyed upon them. So the people staged an Occupy the Promised Land movement. They camped out, they demonstrated, they marched, they chanted, and they got more than some mocking media coverage. They got an audience, and they got action. Samuel came out to meet the demonstrators, and he said, what is it that you want? And he listened, while the elders of the people shouted red face, and spitting an inch from the old priest's nose. We want a king like everybody else. We want a king like the nations. Why does Israel always have to be different? We want a king who can establish law and enforce it. So that we don't have to live under the arbitrary whims of your no good, lascivious, libidinous sons. We want a king to stabilize the economy, to stimulate economic growth to defend the borders, to forge national security. Give us a king who will make us feel strong, they shouted. So Samuel, angry and hurt, shouts his complaints up the line. He shouted his rage to God in prayer. Can you believe these people, he railed. And God said back, calm yourself, they aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting me as king over them. Even so, I won't reject them. I am the Lord and I am big enough to be slapped in the face and return the favor with a kiss. You give them what they want and then I'll give them more. I'll give them what I want for them. 
And that is the gospel. God gives us what we ask for to let us feel the frustration of our broken, dark desires. And then he gives us what we don't ask for to let us feel his perfect grace. There were generations of painful kings, kings who were miseries, and right in the midst of them was David. And a thousand years after him, there was the perfect king who resembled David but surpassed David. Not a king after God's own heart, but a king who possessed God's heart, had the same heart as God. And David is a picture of that better king in our passage here. David was at his kingly best when he wasn't acting like a king at all. And that's the point God is making. You want a certain kind of king, and I'm going to give you that, but only to turn your stomachs and make your hearts lurch, because because I have in mind for you a very different kind of king. And by the time we're finished here, by the end of it all, you'll want my better king too. Now to get the full reach of what's going on in this passage, the backdrop to the story is that David is the newly recognized king of Israel. There was some trouble, there were still some Saulite supporters in the kingdom, and so David had to do some small unit fighting to stabilize the tribes, but that's been done, and now everybody agrees David is king. And a couple chapters earlier, he has conquered the city of Jerusalem. It was a Philistine city originally, and David took it. He sent commando teams through the sewer system to capture it. And now it's the capital city of the kingdom. It's the political capital. It's the religious capital. And and to top it all off, David has dug the Ark of the Covenant out of the storage unit where it's been kept for 20 or 30 years. Nobody wanted to touch it. They were all afraid of it. But now David is placing the Ark of the Covenant at the center of Israel's life. But don't be mistaken about the Ark. It wasn't a magic box. It was a meaningful box. That's the mistake we normally make with the sacraments. They're not magic. They're meaningful, physical objects meant to pull out of the hearts of people faith. And the ark contained the artifacts of Israel's history, the artifacts of Israel's redemption. If you were to take the lid off the box, inside you'd find the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. Aaron's staff, his walking stick, which preached grace again and again because by it miracles were performed. And there was a jar, a pot with manna in it. That strange bread-like, baklava-like substance. It settled on the ground in the desert with the dew in the morning. God fed his people by it for 40 years as they trudged aimlessly, directionlessly. And all of them were signs that God was serious about His promise to make this people His own, whatever it took. 
And then there was the gold-carved lid of the ark. And on top of it were two kneeling angels facing each other with their wings folded over their heads, wingtips meeting at the center of the lid. The lid was called the mercy seat, and it was God's throne on earth. God's presence hovered over the lid. The only way I can describe that to you is it was something like a disturbance in the air, a bend in the air. The ark brought into the city meant that God was king over this people and he was coming to live with them in a saving closeness. And the only response for an occasion like this is to dance as the ark is paraded into the city and David does. Now, you know this passage from your upbringing. You've heard it referred to. This is the passage where we were told as we were growing up that David danced naked before the ark. Just how naked he was, no one is certain. But commentators are generally agreed that it was not an offense to holiness. It wasn't exhibitionism. Most commentators think that the passage itself and its editorials describe David wearing something like a nightshirt. A plain shift of some kind. He's taken off his royal robes, all of his royal insignia, his crown, and now he's just a plain commoner, undressed of any power or authority or importance, and now he dances to show his joy at God's salvation of this people. A journalist I like to read from time to time was traveling around the globe. He was trying to make it all the way around the world, and he stopped off in Argentina. It was a place he'd always wanted to visit. And he spent some time in Argentina and decided that while he was there, he should look into the national art form. And so he decided to visit a tango class one afternoon. He found a studio downtown, and he went inside and paid his $10 to come into the class. And then he sat in a chair at the edge of the room. And the instructor walked into the room and noticed that he was wearing tennis shoes... And she barked at him, wear your dancing shoes. I'm not here to dance, I'm I'm just here to watch. No one watches a tango class, you dance the tango. On your feet, she snapped. And sheepishly, like a scolded child, he stood up in front of her. Take me in your arms, she barked at him. So he tried. He tried to hold his lead hand up and he wrapped his right arm around the small of her back. And she cursed out loud and insulted him in front of the whole class. And basically what she said is, you hold me like a Frenchman. I have no idea what that means. He didn't either, but he knew it wasn't good. And he was so humiliated that he vowed before he had ever danced a single step of the tango that he would master the dance. After the humiliating class, he went out into the city and he hired two coaches. And he said, I want you to teach me the three things that every tango dancer misses. Three things to exploit. He trained all day, every day for six months. And at the end of the six months, 
He and his dance partner won the world championships. Six months. Do you have any idea how incredibly difficult that is? People study the tango for 30 and 40 years, and they never attain that level of proficiency. And what David does on this occasion looks nothing like that. There's nothing technical or refined or graceful in anything that David does. It's all improv. It's unrehearsed. It's raw and unchoreographed. And in the middle of it, there's no fanfare for David, no pomp and circumstance. There's no motorcade, no armed guard, no secret service agents in their dark suits and earpieces running alongside the presidential car, speaking reports into microphoned cuffs. There's no royal wave, no royal insignia or regalia of any kind. Just just David making a royal fool of himself. David in his skivvies, kicking up his heels in the streets and laughing and crying and drooling down his beard. The king in humility. It broke the news this week that one of the tabloid newspapers in London had dispatched a reporter whose sole job it was over the years to tail Prince William and not be seen in the hopes of catching him at some unprincely activity. But David does it willingly. He volunteers for it publicly as a way of proclaiming We live in the saving strength of our God, not in the strength of David or any other king of Israel. It was worship over politics. And David spins his whirling dervish through the streets of Jerusalem and carts roll along behind him and attendants hand out food. A loaf of bread, a cut of meat, a cake of raisins for every man and woman in the crowd. Courses for the people to take home and cook and combine for a feast. It may seem odd to us, but it's a demonstration that everyone has the same share in the love and the mercies of God. No ranks. A shared inheritance of closeness and fellowship and joy and fullness. And at the end of the parade route, David is spent. And the text says he goes home to bless his own household, to take the joy of the dancing parade back to his own family. And he walks into the apartment, and he throws his keys on the coffee table, and he falls on the sectional in an exhausted heap, and he calls out to Michael, his wife, Did you see it, babe? Were you there Wasn't it great? And Michael, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, the first king, remember, is hiding in the kitchen, seething and fuming. She despised David in her heart as she watched all this, remember. She puts her cigarette out, 
She sets down her scotch on the counter. It's her third of the afternoon. She feels no fear. And she comes charging at David like a line of Philistine infantry. You fool, she says. Some king. Not a kingly shred in you. Not a fiber. My father, the king, would never have put on such a display. To dance and shuffle in the gutter like a common busker, David. You made yourself jester in Israel today. You're no man of power, no man of dignity. You're no man. You made yourself a body tavern reveler swinging servant girls in your arms. A plaything for common servant girls, David. Tell me, O king, do the servant girls of Israel have the right to see their sovereign half undressed? Do the servant girls of Israel have the right to lay their hands on the king in a familiar manner? You made yourself low today, David, and you disgust me. Well, David's exhaustion has magically left him. Now he feels a strength surging through his body to match the strength he felt on the day he single-handedly killed 200 Philistines to win the right to marry this knife-tongued woman. And now he's on his feet. We are low, Michael. Or have you forgotten? Do you not remember our history? We were not a people at all, and we came from Abraham. Abraham, an old man whose body was dead as a dry stick. 400 years, we were slaves in Egypt. And then desert wanderers, 40 years after that, we were homeless. And I'm a shepherd boy from the hill country. And your father, the first king of Israel, comes from no great blue-blooded line. We are low. But we are loved. We are Loved by a God who is not ashamed of our lowness. His, his love fills up our lowness, Michael. And that's why I danced. And I'll make Mary before him again. And I'll make myself even more contemptible to you yet. I will not let you forget you are no great queen. I will abase myself and the servant girls of Israel will always honor me because today I preach to them in their lowness. They are loved by our God, every one of them a princess in his eyes. And you, for your pride, you're as empty as a beggar woman. It's quite an argument. Michael calls David fool. And he calls her widow. The closing verse is suggestive. You have to read between the lines to see what's happened. But David never touched Michael again. She would not be allowed to give birth to the heir to the throne. The line of Saul dies here. 
and the king in waiting would not be a descendant of greed and pride and folly. 1,000 years following David, David's truest heir replays this entire scene because Jesus makes himself contemptible and abases his, his own person as he comes riding into Jerusalem. Under the same circumstances, he's come to Jerusalem to conquer it. The true ark himself has arrived. Jesus is the law of God, the beauty of the law in flesh. He is the mystery and the miracle of redemption in person. He is the sweet bread to fill empty hearts and souls. All wrapped up in one, one kingly figure. And Jesus rides into town on a donkey of all things. Not a charger. Not a war horse, not an animal bred for the battlefield. All this talk about a kingdom and setting up God's rule on earth. All the trouble with Rome and, and the, the national identity of Israel being in flux. And Jesus doesn't ride into town on a war horse. He comes on a donkey, an animal that the kings would ride only in seasons of peace. It's so embarrassing. Everything he's led us to believe and his actions don't follow. And a spectacle goes ahead of him. Crowds of people waving palm branches, laying out their coats on the road before him. They're dancing and singing, Hosanna, save, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How embarrassing. Pharisees try to silence the crowds, which is probably what we would try to do. It it doesn't work. And they parade Jesus right up to the doorstep of the temple. But then, unsure of what's supposed to happen next, the excitement fizzles and the crowd evaporates and everybody just disappears down the side streets of the city. So embarrassing. But Jesus knows why he's come to the temple And he enters, and he turns over the tables of the merchants, and he takes a whip of cords he's made out from under his cloak, and he makes it sing and sting. And he mutters something over all the furor and chaos, something like, atonement is not meant to be a way for you to line your pockets, you Shylocks. What an utter embarrassment. The rest of the week is filled with cryptic teachings. They become more and more riddle-like. Public debates with the Pharisees that are more and more hostile in tone. A feast is interrupted by a widow woman who comes in and breaks an expensive alabaster jar of perfume, pours it on his feet, wipes it off with her hair, crying all the time. There's a cursed fig tree that withers and dies on the spot. A gloomy trip to a garden in the middle of the night for a prayer meeting no one can stay awake for. An arrest by a torch-lit armed mob and a midnight trial at the chief priest's house, which is never supposed to happen. Trials only happen in daylight so that the truth can be fully revealed. All of it's an embarrassment. In fact... Everything about Jesus is an embarrassment. His birth. The eternal one who has no beginning. 
and he stuffs himself in the fragility of an infant. The one who holds the universe together by the word of his power, and he comes wordless in the weakness and the helplessness of a baby. The one outside of time gives himself a birthday, and it gets better. He's conceived by a holy ghost, uh, one of the persons of the Trinity, but we don't know how to refer to this one exactly. The Holy Spirit conceives him in the womb of a virgin, a 14-year-old Jewish girl who's minding her own business and it ruins the rest of her life. It's beyond reason. It's too big for words to make sense of it. But all of it put together makes Jesus the one who's fully God and fully man. Completely pure and yet completely Human, like us but unlike us, unfallen, but still the whole thing's embarrassing. And if you don't believe me, go tell your neighbors this afternoon everything I've just told you. You won't do it. His cross is an embarrassment. The nakedness of it, the stripped bareness of it, the admitted weakness of it, the scandal of it. The shame, the suffering, the rejection, the guilt, the earthbound agony of heaven's displeasure for sin. His resurrection is an embarrassment. It's sleeping beauty theology. He lays himself down in the sleep of our death to kiss us awake out of it, but it's never been done before. Death overcome it's a ridiculous claim to have a body a life moving like a freight train in the direction of utter dissipation and three days into that descent the course changes it's against our best science you will not go to the doctor and ever hear your physician say I'm sorry to have to tell you you're in a bad way, but the good news is there's always resurrection, fingers crossed. That'll never be the diagnosis for you. It goes against the natural order of things. But we've lived under this order for so long that it's woven like fibers of expectancy into our being. The ancient king who has ruled over every part of us Death in our physiology, death in our psychology, our emotions, our minds, our thoughts, death in our work and our careers, death in our creativity and our ability, death in our relationships, and suddenly, without warning, our dark ancient king is dethroned because Jesus walks out of a tomb and dances on the outside. pathology of embarrassment is really simple. And it comes down to this. I hate your weakness because it reminds me of my own. Somehow I know that I'm the embarrassment, but you better not remind me of it. Don't embarrass yourself and show me the truth about me. Because I don't want to be weak. I want to feel strong. So to hide my weakness and to keep up my delusion of strength, I look for people all around me to worship. A king, a pastor, a spouse, a 
co-worker, a boss, a lover, a friend, a child, a parent, a slightly better, slightly stronger version of myself who makes me think I'm stronger than I am. But that's not the gospel. To be awarded for our strength is not the gospel. That's flesh. And you can have that if you want it, but go have it by its name. Love, on the other hand, is always embarrassing. And at the same time, it's the remedy for embarrassment. Because love always finds us in our weakness and loves us anyway. Look, I get it. I know the deep challenge of Christianity for skeptics and Christians. Jesus is embarrassing. And he tries very little to not be embarrassing. I get it. Skeptics want to run from him. And Christians who love him still hide him like a dark secret in the basement. What do you do with the king who makes himself an embarrassment? like dancing David or the crucified Christ? What do you do with a king who makes himself a fool before the eyes of the world? Oh, you look for his meaning. You look for the gospel. And all the embarrassing things Jesus does, he is saying, but don't you see I'm not embarrassed by you? I'm not embarrassed to love you. The things that you're most embarrassed by, they don't drive or push me away. In the humble helplessness of an infant, I have loved you. In the crucified guilt of a criminal, an offense to holiness, I have loved you. In the irreversible sentence of death turned back on itself, I have loved you. Your lowness does not repulse me. It excites my compassion for you. It deepens my desire to have you. Our king makes himself an embarrassment to show he is not embarrassed to love us in any of our failure, any of our shame, any of our brokenness. Whether you're a skeptic or a Christian, if Jesus is not embarrassed to love you, why, why exactly are you embarrassed by him? If you can find a better love than that, you should take it. But at least weigh this love in its full measure before you throw it away, before you dismiss it. The gospel of the king who dances in his underwear, is this. What exactly does love have to be embarrassed about? How will I know if I'm embarrassed to be loved by Jesus, entering my weakness and vulnerability to touch me there and apply his gospel there to to do his work of grace in those most tender and sensitive and hurtful places? The symptoms are obvious. The symptoms are easy. You'll put too much stock in other people and you'll become unhinged when they fail you. 
Uh, the symptom is written all over the passage. You will look like disgusted Michael waiting at home to read David the riot act. And you'll have no joy in the tenderness and the mercy of Christ. No joy for yourself. No joy for anyone else either. Ah, the symptom is as plain as day. You'll look like Michael cursed to be childless. Now, I'm using that spiritually, and here's what I mean. No new life will come out of union. No progeny, no legacy of love and comfort and rejoicing and peace. Well, if I am embarrassed... By the way, Jesus insists on loving me. How do I turn my heart? You can't. But maybe this will do it. Jesus has danced in humility for the joy of having you. I love this story. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, an artist named Tom Waits, embarked on a North American tour a few years back. And he only scheduled tour dates in cities where people owed him money. Now, you can guess at why he did that. That, that somewhere between concerts, he would call on his debtors and demand from them payment. But that, if you think about it, it seems like a lot of trouble to go to. Why stage a concert and then collect from those who owe you? Why not just go to those cities and ask people to pay up or or ring them up on the phone and ask to settle the account or hire a lawyer and file suit? He, He never explained why he did it, but I have a theory and I hope it's true. My guess is that he went to cities where he was owed money to play concerts so that he could earn in that place of debt and deficit more than what he was owed. And he could cancel the debt. And he could go back to those cities without feeling any offense. The embarrassment had been wiped away. And your embarrassing king is not embarrassed by you. Your embarrassing king is not embarrassed to love you. And no kingly protocols get in the way of his very street level love. His love in the gutter. Love dancing in your gutter. You are low. But you are loved. Now, Lord Jesus, give to us the good news in both of its parts. We are low. There's nothing we can be proud of in ourselves. There's no boasting we have to maintain for ourselves. We are loved with all of the strength, the gifts, and the wealth of Jesus, the high King of heaven who is not embarrassed to call us his very own. How can these two things together not make our hearts awake and alive? And how can these two things together not fill us with joy?
Oh, forgive us for being too easily swayed and fearful of embarrassment. What have we to be embarrassed at if the eternal word of God has come in flesh crucified himself on a cross and emptied out a tomb. How could any of our worst failures, our most shameful actions or thoughts or dreams, how could any of those things haunt and terrorize us seriously in the light of that love? Oh, Jesus, thank you for being an embarrassment. May we never be embarrassed to know how deeply, affectionately, how warmly disposed you are for us whom you call your own, whom you make your own. And now, give to us the joy that comes with it. For all these things we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.